Uh, it's wonderful to have so many friends and colleagues here today. And I guess the first point that I want to make is that geriatrics is definitely a team sport. And I'm quoting Ellen Flaherty, who's here. And I've had the privilege of being a team member with so many of you uh, in the room in so many different contexts. I know that some of you uh, work in office settings. I've seen you in the hospital, taking care of hospitalized patients, home care, hospice. And we really all need to work together when we're dealing with the issue of pain. There's so much communication that needs to go on between patients, families, caregivers, hospice. We all need to communicate and um, really try hard to express um, and advocate for the patient, particularly when the patient can't talk for themselves. So some of the challenges are that how can we manage pain when the patient can't express it directly? And recognition that pain and dementia have so much potential overlap in their behavioral expression. Things like agitation, confusion, depressed mood, apathy. Are these manifestations of pain? Are these manifestations of the underlying dementia? So part of what we're gonna to try to tease out through some case studies is how we need to address both of them concurrently. And later on in the presentation, I'll actually uh, present a little algorithm that can sometimes be helpful. My objectives today are to describe some pain assessments that are tailored to the cognitive status of the patient, help you to identify the behavioral signs of pain in elders with dementia who can't speak, and I'll describe a stepped approach to selected analgesics. Certainly we could have a whole day conference on pain and selecting the appropriate medication, so I'm gonna be selective there. And I'm gonna focus on the safe use of acetaminophen because given that this is an over-the-counter medication and it's so ubiquitous, each of us um, has opportunities to do patient education about acetaminophen, and I will talk about opiates. I also wanna put in a pitch for the November 13th program. I'm gonna be speaking again then with Dr. Lisa Fermansky about the, the use and the misuse of opiates in elders, and there's a really a phenomenal program that, that the Geriatric Education Center has put together uh, for November 13th. And this picture says a lot because pain definitely affects function. And what you see here is a walker and a gentleman who's got his head in his hands. And we have two goals in geriatrics, to preserve function and to maintain comfort. And if you hurt and you don't move, then what's gonna happen is that you're gonna get progressively more frail and then you lose more function, and then there are you know, definitely uh, negative consequences from that. So we're always trying to think about what can we do to maintain function. And I want to start out with the case of Stanley. And Stanley uh, is an 86-year-old man who was recently admitted to a long-term care facility. And the reason that he was admitted was that he was hitting his wife. Not just once, but many times. And he weighed 220 pounds, his wife Lillian weighed 120 pounds. So she was getting hurt with this. And he was not a violent man. He had never hit her in the course of their long marriage. And what the primary care physician was doing was starting to treat the agitation with Seroquel. And a little Seroquel wasn't working, giving more Seroquel and more Seroquel. Um, and Stanley, Stanley was ambulatory, he was also wandering and leaving the house. So the family 
the adult children felt like they could no longer manage, the wife was at risk, so he was admitted to long-term care. And the initial assessment was that Stanley was actually in quite a bit of pain. He was having a lot of knee pain and back pain, and he was getting what was at the time the recommended dose of Tylenol, which was four grams a day. So I worked very collaboratively in long-term care with a wonderful nurse practitioner who did a thorough assessment. She came up with the back pain and the knee pain as the most likely causes of pain. She assessed him for a UTI. He did not have a urinary tract infection. Looked at his skin. There were no painful skin conditions. And she elected, given this was pretty severe pain, to actually start him directly on a fentanyl patch. Um, she chose a dose of 25 micrograms, which was higher than the recommended starting dose, which is actually 12, but this was her decision at the time. He was in, an, in a facility where he could be watched very closely. And lo and behold, within 48 hours, he was a new man. He became much more relaxed. He was interactive with staff. I mean, his family was just, like, shocked at how much more um, calm he was. And he actually became transformed and much more functional. Um, it's now two years later, and his fentanyl dose has remained fairly low. He's only on 50 micrograms a day. His Tylenol dose has been appropriately decreased under the ceiling of 3,000 milligrams a day in long-term care. And interestingly, his Seroquel dose has been cut in a third. He only takes 100 milligrams of Seroquel daily now, and that's divided up into 25 in the morning, 25 at noon, and 50 at night, which helps him to sleep. So this is an example, it's fairly dramatic, of undertreated pain manifest as aggression. But as someone who works in long-term care, I do see this often, and I have to have a very open mind. When patients have been kind of stable and then start to get more aggressive, to really think seriously about, is this person in pain, and why are they in pain? In terms of the definition of pain, the American the International Association for the Study of Pain has a really good website with lots of definitions about pain and pain management. And I like this definition because it's an unpleasant sensory and an emotional experience that's associated with actual or threatened tissue damage or described in terms of such damage. And patients with dementia really retain emotions throughout. They may not be able to talk, uh, but they are very sensitive to how we speak to them. And this is a point that I use to educate families all the time. And think about it if you do something silly, like let's say you're in your kitchen and you shut the drawer too quickly and you jam your finger in the drawer. We've all done it. I did it last week. So what usually happens is you go, ow, and then sometimes you swear. You don't really mean to swear, and it, but the swear word comes out like before you even know it. Um, it can be very embarrassing at times. And so what that swear word usually represents is an emotion. You know, it hurts. And what do we feel? We feel angry and pissed off. Like, why? Why did I? What's such a stupid thing, you know? How did I manage to slam my finger in the car door? But oftentimes when we feel pain, we also feel fear. We wonder, OK, what does this mean? Let's say you fall down. Did I break a bone? Can I get up? So. Elders who experience pain are also experiencing anger and fear and frustration. So you've got to remember that emotional component. In terms of pain descriptors, it's way beyond the context today to get into all the different types of pain. But in general, I'm going to be talking about 
nociceptive pain, and in particular, somatic pain, like the pain due to degenerative arthritis. And people will often describe this as, it hurts, it feels sharp, tender, it aches, as opposed to visceral pain when we think of someone has a gallstone. And there, people will talk about kind of spasm, and colicky, crampy pain. A lot of elders experience neuropathic pain, and we could talk for a whole hour about neuropathic pain. Um, I'll, I'll mention an example later on of post-herpetic neuralgia, which is quite common in seniors. About 10% of people who get shingles do get post-herpetic neuralgia. And this neuropathic pain is what people describe as shooting, burning, stabbing, pins and needles, numbness. Very, very common. And of course, there's inflammatory pain, vascular pain. And in order to be effective, we do have to spend time thinking about, well, what's the cause of the pain so we can match the treatment? Pain, of course, is pervasive in our elders. So many people, a very large percentage, experience chronic medical conditions that are associated with pain. It can be acute pain or persistent pain, or both. We know that underreporting of pain is very common in elders. In prevalent studies, about 50% of people in ambulatory settings will say they experience pain, and about 85% of people in long-term care. And many studies have shown that patients who have cognitive impairment are at risk for, for receiving inadequate analgesia. And this is a long list of the common sources of pain. And number one is certainly degenerative joint disease, spinal stenosis. People have pain from their fractures. Mr. D earlier with his hip fracture, radicular pain. And then all the common problems of urinary retention and constipation. Certainly, many elders have had cancer. They've had strokes, and some of them have post-stroke pain. Pressure ulcers hurt. I see that Peter Nolet is here, and he certainly knows this in so many of his patients with pressure ulcers. Sometimes people are not positioned well, and they can't move because of a variety of reasons, and that can hurt. And I really want to just draw people's attention to oral and dental issues, because 15 years ago in long-term care, everybody came in with dentures. Nowadays, people keep their teeth. But when they start to get dementia, they don't do such a good job brushing their teeth. That They forget to brush. And when you open the mouths of so many elders, first of all, they're oftentimes on medications that dry their mouth or they're not drinking enough. And their mouths can hurt. They can have carious teeth. So I know that in the facility where I work, we actually have a dentist who comes routinely, assesses people. And this is a really important part of their care, attention to good oral hygiene. Um, Coronary artery disease can hurt with angina and, of course, peripheral vascular disease and post-herpetic neuralgia. Acute pain, um, people know about pretty well. I'm going to kind of skip the details here. But just to make the point that elders respond as well to opiates as to younger patients and that pain is always subjective and we have to believe the patient. So many times the patient will say they're hurting, but we have our doubts, or the family has their doubts. So I just make a, a plea that we um, understand that pain is individual. There are many cultural aspects to pain, but we do need to believe the patient's report. So let's imagine uh, Mr. D, uh, Dr. Santuri's patient who's, who fell, who was walking in the hallway in the assisted living. And when he presented to the ER, he had significant pain 
on movement of his right leg due to the intertrochanteric fracture. And in fact, the behavior that he showed is that he was moaning, he was yelling out with the slightest movement. But when the nurse went in and said, Mr. D, can you rate your pain on a 1 to 10 scale? If 10 is the worst pain, he just can't understand the pain scale. So Dr. Cedeno's in the ER, and let's say this patient comes in, what would you do to uh, manage his pain? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. That's a really great point, which is treating the patient immediately for pain. We know that he has a broken hip. So I would give him morphine intravenously, like four milligrams times one, and then assess the effect over the next half hour and see how he does. And so I just want to make the point that there's a role for intravenous uh, analgesics in elders and that oral analgesics would not be indicated for this type of acute uh, severe pain, just because it would take about an hour for that to kick in and we want to get an immediate effect. And for persistent pain, this is a really important slide because the, we, call, we used to call chronic pain, but we've kind of gotten away from that because chronic pain has a lot of negative attitudes. Um, in healthcare providers and patients, there's a lot of stereotypes about chronic pain patients, and I'd like to just say, let's put that aside. I think persistent pain is a lot more kind of, uh, it's a more realistic description. And the pain is persistent because either the cause of the pain cannot be removed or otherwise treated. So for example, the patient who has spinal stenosis, that is gonna cause a persistent pain. And the pain may be associated with a long-term incurable or intractable medical condition, like some of the post-stroke pain syndromes, for example. And persistent pain can occur even in the absence of a demonstrable tissue pathology. In other words, it just hurts. And we can't really describe or explain why, but it hurts. We have to accept that at face value and kind of move on from there. In dementia patients, we recognize that the sensory perception is preserved. They have the same pain thresholds as patients who don't have dementia. The peripheral nervous system works. The pathways work through the central nervous system. But it seems that the cortical processing of some of the pain impulses uh, may be altered. And certainly, the ability to express pain is definitely affected by dementia. And so patients may demonstrate atypical behaviors and reactions to pain. We also know that patients with dementia can get higher drug concentrations at the receptor sites. And that's secondary to a mechanism of decreased elimination. And this can cause unusual behaviors in response to the pain medications we give them. So for example, when you give four milligrams of morphine to a younger patient, you may not see hallucinations, but with repetitive doses in an elder, they may experience hallucinations that can be very frightening. So we need to be aware that our medications might be received differently in patients uh, with dementia. And studies have also shown that if we don't treat pain adequately, there can be many consequences, such as agitation, physical combativeness, and this can include hitting loved ones or staff, verbal aggression, 
um, disruptive behaviors such as refusing care. We see this often in long-term care. Wandering, sleep disturbance, depression, and then social withdrawal and isolation. So we see this patient, she's striking out at her caregiver, and we just don't know. Is the worsening behavior because her dementia is getting worse, or is it because she's uncomfortable? She's in pain, but she can't tell us what's going on. So clearly, um, she's experiencing both a sensory and an emotional experience. I really want to make this point before I go any further, which is that depression and pain are what I call mutually exacerbating conditions. Insofar as if you're depressed, your pain feels worse. And if you're in a lot of pain, your depression feels worse. So for me to be effective in trying to treat someone's pain, I have to identify and treat if the patient's depressed, if they have anxiety, and if they're not sleeping well. So you know, trying to get in all about depression is way beyond the scope of what we're talking about. But I just want to make people aware and to think about that pain and depression can make each other worse. So in terms of my pain assessment, some of the key elements are first to just ask the patient directly, are you in pain? And in patients who have mild dementia, moderate dementia, they can usually answer that question. And sometimes you have to try to format your questions into a yes-no format. I find that's a lot more effective than like real open-ended questions. So are you in pain now, yes or no? And sometimes I kind of use the yes or no to kind of get the dialogue going. And we all have to remember that some patients can appear to us in terrible pain, but they are not going to identify it as pain. And we see this in primary care with chest pain. For example, I might go see someone who's in the emergency department having a myocardial infarction. They might even be a healthcare provider having a myocardial infarction. And I'll say to them, are you having pain? You know, there they are, the sweat is dripping off of them, they're nauseous. They'll say, no, I'm not in pain. I say, well, do you hurt? They say, yes, I hurt. Well, do you have ache? Yeah, I have ache. I have pressure. So some people will identify with hurt, ache, pressure, but they will not call it pain. Never will they call it pain. So you really want to ask for how much of the time. And I'm, I'm thinking of um, a phone message that Enid, my, one of my nurses, took, who's sitting in the very, very back of the room, where she sent me um, a phone, an email message. Um, Mr. Jones is in pain, terrible pain, 10 hours out of 24. So it was like, whoa, that's a red flag. We got a really serious problem. And he had an oral cancer that, you know, he was just in a lot of pain a lot of the day. That's different from someone who's in pain for five minutes a day. The patient's report might be, you know, it's still an intense pain, but the duration is really effective, is really important in terms of how we're gonna manage the pain. Has pain made it hard for you to sleep at night? A key question in geriatrics. Has pain affected your day-to-day -day activities? Are you limiting what you're doing? Are you using a scheduled pain medication? If a person's in a facility, I always look at the logs and see, was a PRN medication offered and declined by the patient, but was it offered? And is the patient receiving any non-medication interventions for pain? I would love to have a conference on the non-medication interventions for pain, but these things are so important to our patients. Our TENS units, our hot packs, our massage, our ice packs. 
um, and then all the topical things that we give. We're not going to have a lot of time to discuss that today, but it's very important. The pain scale we're all familiar with, and typically when it's asked, um, what we'll ask people, what's the worst pain you've had over the last five days? Well, that's a problem for dementia patients. They're often in the here and now. You know, so we, we ask them about what's going on right now, but we have to ask their caregivers to get that other history about what's been going on before. And research has also shown, though, that caregivers tend to underestimate the person's amount of pain. So we do the best we can. Um, in patients with dementia, sometimes it's helpful just to use the simple verbal descriptors. Is the pain mild, moderate, severe, or just horrible? Um, and they can respond to that. Um, we've got our palliative care team here, and people are familiar with the FACES scale. This was developed in pediatrics. And the idea is that the patient is supposed to pick the face. And it's of limited use in patients with dementia. Uh, sometimes it's traditionally presented like this with the numbers, and patients get caught up on the numbers, the face. Um, in long-term care, I find it useful for patients with aphasia who um, can definitely understand what you're saying, but they can't express it, and they can uh, point to the scale. It's not what you think about their pain. It's, it's something that they have to select. The heart of what we're going to get at now is talking about patients who can't speak for themselves. And I want to mention the pain signature, because I think this is something that caregivers are really tuned into. And the pain signature is a personal gesture that the patient uses that demonstrates their pain. And this woman may be putting her hands over her eyes. That may be her pain gesture. Um, there may be someone who repetitively will rub a part of their body. Like some patients will just move their hand up and down on their thigh to indicate and show that they're in pain. Some people will just curl up in a ball and lie in their bed and they won't get up or move. Um, one caregiver told me about, his, uh, one gentleman was telling me about his wife that when she was in pain, she would shake her foot. So he could see, he'd see the shaking movement that meant that he knew he had to medicate her at that time. So I think it's really helpful when you're uh, assessing a patient with dementia to really be explicit with the caregiver, to find out what is the pain signature for their loved one, and how can they share that with the care team so that we can all be tuned in. Because the pain signature does tend to be unique and personal, and um, it's important to understand that. In terms of the behavioral manifestations of pain, certainly there are vocal complaints. Help, help, ouch, ouch, stop. You know, um, it, that's, and then of course the nonverbal sounds, the crying, whining, I meant to say gasping, moaning, groaning. Sometimes it's just low level vocalization. It's kind of like a humming sound. It's not even a, a specific word. And then we're, we look for the facial uh, signs, the wincing or grimacing, wrinkled forehead, furrowed brow, the clenched teeth or jaw. And then we observe protective body movements. Sometimes patients will brace themselves and just get rigid in their chair. They'll guard body parts, the rubbing or massaging I mentioned, and then certain clutching or holding uh, body parts during movement. Um, if any of you are nurses in long-term care, you're familiar with how uh, on most med parts, there's a, a nonverbal pain chart that's there. And it would look something like this. And if you can see, I don't know if people can see in the back of the room, the left-hand column 
is really where the, um, the different items are. And that's where you look at the person's pattern of breathing. Are they breathing comfortably, or are they having noisy breathing or labored breathing, indicating pain? Um, in terms of negative vocalizations, are they moaning or groaning? Um, are they repeatedly calling out the help, help? Um, the facial expression, does it look like the person is smiling, although in advanced dementia, patients do lose their ability to smile. Um, do people look sad or frightened? Um, or are you actually seeing facial grimacing? Body language, we've discussed already. And consolability is a key thing. And I want to just point to the picture on the right because uh, it, when people are having pain and, and you approach them and comfort them, some patients will accept that comfort, but when people kind of get to a point where a skillful caregiver can't console them or distract them, then that tells you that the pain is really pretty severe. So this is not meant to really be scored in any way, it's just meant as an educational piece. In terms of geriatric pharmacology, very complex topic, but there's a great review article, it's, and I mention it, um, I have a reference sheet at the end. It's put out by the American Geriatric Society in 2009. There's a very succinct review of assessing and managing pain in seniors. And we try to emphasize a multimodal approach to pain, that we need to always combine both pharmacological and non-pharmacological measures for pain. So in addition to our medications, it's using heat, ice, massage, physical therapy, relaxing music. All these things are really important. And another just general principle for pain management is that we get better effectiveness if we use two or more approaches together. So if we use, let's say, a combination of Tylenol and an opiate, that we might get better benefit and less toxicity than if we tried to use either one of those in a really high dose. So using a smaller amount and combining them does seem to be more effective. And that takes us to a very um, uh, kind of, I was going to say, probably a basic concept that most people have heard about before, which is the WHO pain ladder. And this is from the World Health Organization, and it's really um, intended as a worldwide approach to pain. So it's certainly essential to bring out in a conference like this. And it relates to people of all ages. And just, I want to make the point that in many parts of the world, people do not have opiates, uh, access uh, to prescription opiates uh, when they're dealing with pain. And I've certainly personally worked in a number of third world countries where there is no morphine available, which is really hard for us to think about sometimes because many people suffer without access to the medications that we do have access to. So the um, ladder is, has been generated for people of all ages. So on the first rung of the ladder are people with mild pain, and this is focused on acetaminophen. Paracetamol is a word that's used in um, other countries to refer to acetaminophen. Um, aspirin or um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. And then the next step up are, is for mild to moderate pain, um, primarily opioids, mild opioids, and then for moderate to severe pain, the strong active opioids. So there's, I just want to bring up that there are incremental stages or steps that we use in addressing pain. Next, I just wanted to bring up the cost because there's a huge variety of uh, cost of the medications that I just had in the prior slide. And so for example, 
And cost is such a big issue for all of our seniors, whether they're living at home or in assisted living uh, or in skilled nursing facilities. And so for example, a medicine that we use commonly, uh, long-acting morphine, MS cotton, a one-month supply, the, this is the retail cost for someone who doesn't have uh, a prescription drug plan, is $46 a month, which is within the range of what most people can afford, and that's not usually a, a barrier in, in my practice. Um, for short-acting pain medication, a month of oxycodone, five milligrams, four times a day, 120 tablets, cost $67 a month. A little more expensive, but within range. Ultram or tramadol is something that I'm gonna talk about in a few minutes. That's also very affordable. Now, methadone, five milligrams daily, is something that, first of all, actually, who in the room here is a prescriber? That would help me. Okay, we have a lot of prescribers here. So, uh, methadone is something that, who in the room is a methadone prescriber and prescribes it for pain? Fewer hands. Um, it's something that people certainly need to get experience on doing. I once, um, I belong to the American Association of Hospice and Palliative Medicine, and I went to methadone boot camp. Um, it was fabulous. It was like a two-hour program, and I left that with a lot more comfort in prescribing uh, methadone. And one real benefit of using methadone is that it is so inexpensive. Um, a month, five milligrams a day, costs only $10. So there's a lot, and it's also a long-acting medication. Obviously, a lot of complexity to prescribing methadone that I'm not going to go into today, but just to make the point that for some patients where cost is a real barrier, um, that it is a very inexpensive medication, and people might want to collaborate with someone who is experienced in prescribing methadone because there are many benefits. Um, but it's not something you do casually, and you definitely need guidance before you do it. Methadone liquid is something that is sometimes used in, in um, high-intensity pain situations, and that costs a lot more than the tablet. I just want to make that point. And fentanyl patches, like um, the first patient's family used, are very expensive, $163 for a one-month supply. So there is a huge disparity there. Now, my mother's 82 years old, and so we often have talks about pain. They, different things hurt. They hurt a lot. She doesn't have dementia. But I'm really familiar with what's in her medicine cabinet. And because we do some of this as telemedicine, uh, even though she lives here in Lebanon, and I have opportunity to see her frequently. And one thing that works for her intermittently is a leave uh, for arthritis pain. But I want to make the point that it's used best intermittently and not as a daily medication uh, for seniors, and in particular for seniors with dementia, because it has so many potential side effects. Adverse effects on blood pressure control, renal function, as well as heart failure. And of course, with um, this, we cannot give it with aspirin due to the antiplatelet effect and the risk of bleeding. I've seen cognitive effects with just short-term, low doses of NSAIDs. We have to be careful of that. And uh, so people are aware of the gastric irritation. People may not be aware that there are topical forms of non-steroidals that are, we can be used. Um, we can prescribe diclofenac gel. If there are not the same issues with absorption, people can rub it into the area that hurts. It's available over the counter um, in Europe, and it's been really a nice adjunct to pain medication here. Now, I want to focus on Tylenol because people nodded their heads uh, earlier when I, when I mentioned that I talk about Tylenol. First, I want to make the point it's a safe drug at the usual therapeutic doses. 
but also that lay people underestimate the toxicity of Tylenol. It has caused both fatal and non-fatal hepatic necrosis, and older people are at increased risk for the liver effects of Tylenol. And the danger is that therapeutic and just slightly excessive doses can be toxic to the liver in people who are susceptible, as well as in people who are alcoholics. And it, Tylenol has been known since the 1960s to cause these adverse effects on the liver. And it is actually the most, the, to, the toxicity due to Tylenol is the most common cause of acute liver failure in the United States today. And part of the problem is that Tylenol is ubiquitous. And I made this slide just to look at the left-hand column because people are taking these medications, but they don't necessarily know that they have Tylenol in them. Um, they say, oh, I'm just taking my Percocet, or I'm taking my Lortab, or my Vicodin, or my Furacet for headaches. So they don't even identify in their minds. They, they kind of forgot that it has Tylenol in it. But if you look at the label, sometimes it actually doesn't even say acetaminophen. It'll say APAP, and that's kind of the abbreviation for acetaminophen that is in prescription medications. So we're always educating and educating people about looking at uh, labels. So that's some, a few of the prescription medications. All told, acetaminophen is in over 600 medications. Just some examples. For pain, um, obviously we have the name brands here. We have the Tylenol, the extra strength Tylenol, etc. But then there's also the Equate, you know, the Walmart brand of uh, acetaminophen. So there's lots and lots of just straight Tylenol. Then you get to your Tylenol PM, which has 25 milligrams of Benadryl and 500 milligrams of acetaminophen, which is a, a big dose of acetaminophen. And I have some patients, I have one guy who's 90 years old, and he takes three Tylenol PMs every night. I don't think he's rare out there. And every time I tell him, please, Mr. Jones, you should stop this. He says, it's the only thing that helps me to sleep. I don't care. I'm 90. Um, and anyway, um, but it is, there is, and because it is over the counter, people are just, they think it's, because it's over the counter, it's safe. Then we're getting the cold season now. So many cold medications have Tylenol. Um, your Alka-Seltzer Plus, Sudafed, Dristan. So bottom line, I try to educate my patients. It's an uphill battle, but to please not take more than one medication at a time that contains Tylenol. There are some new Tylenol guidelines that I wanted to go over. And that is that extra strength Tylenol, it used to be that people could take eight tablets a day or 4,000 milligrams, or old four grams a day. The new recommendation is that people take no more than six tablets or 3,000 milligrams a day. For the regular strength Tylenol, people used to take 12 or 3,900 milligrams, got them close to the, to the four grams. The new recommendation is only 10 tabs or 3,250 milligrams per day. The dosing interval for Tylenol used to be every four to six hours as needed. Now it's every six hours as needed. There are, the FDA is forcing the makers of Vicodin to change how it's formulated. It used to be in a 5-500 formulation, and that's going to be changing to a 5-325. And the reason is that when they actually did some clinical studies on it, it was equally effective with 325 of acetaminophen versus 500 of acetaminophen. 
And over the last few years in long-term care, we stopped giving 1,000 milligrams of acetaminophen at a dose. We reduced it to 650. And the patients seem to get the same benefit from the 650 as they did from the 1,000. So in my outpatient practice now, I'm following the same guidelines. I'm encouraging people to not take more than 650 milligrams at a time and to follow the guidelines to make sure they get in on under 3,000 milligrams per day. And with acetaminophen, there's a huge risk of multiple prescribers. And I see my other office nurse that I collaborate with, Dawn, is sitting back there. And we had a patient recently who I've been taking care of, um, uh, Mary, for her, who has cognitive impairment. And I've been giving her, um, for her back pain, uh, 650 milligrams of acetaminophen uh, every eight hours. So she's under two grams a day. Um, I also have her. She takes, has neck pain as well, and I've told her that she can take one Percocet a day. She can take it any time of the day that she wants, but she takes one a day. She never goes more than her 30 in a month, and I have quite a few of my elderly patients who kind of self-manage their pain like this. So that still brings her up to 2,275. But then Mary recently developed shingles. She went to the ER, and she was in a lot of pain. She didn't tell the ER doctor that she's taking the two grams of acetaminophen a day that I've been prescribing, and apparently that wasn't real clear through the electronic medical record. And the ER physician told her to take two tablets of Percocet every six hours for her pain, which was an appropriate thing to do. And, and he was appropriate in terms of getting her Tylenol dose under at 2,600 milligrams a day. The problem, though, was when I looked at the ER note, I said, oh my god. You know, I did a little math on the back of the envelope and saw that, okay, if I have around two grams and the ER doctor just prescribed two and a half grams, we are getting really close to five grams of Tylenol a day. And for all I know, Mary also takes a Tylenol PM. So it's just, and if she has a drink, we're really, we're really getting to too much Tylenol. So um, as prescribers, sometimes it's just cleaner to give the person who's in acute pain oxycodone because that way, if they're taking Tylenol at home, you're not gonna have that risk of excessive Tylenol doses. So I, I made the slide just to make the point that it's easy for the Tylenol to add up, and that as kind of care teams, we need to be mindful of that. Tramadol, it's a really useful medication um, in geriatrics. It has centrally acting oral analgesic and dual mechanisms, and it's probably a little too much detail for what we need in our discussion today, um, I use it in dementia patients who are having moderate to severe pain, even though it's considered a weak opioid. It seems to be just effective enough. However, there are problems. There are more drug-to-drug -drug side effects than with opiates, and certainly cannot be given concomitantly with the uh, SSRIs that are used to treat depression, and it can lower the seizure threshold. And of course, it can have addictive potentials even uh, in a person who has addictive tendencies. So it has some benefits, but also some cautions. And in terms of tips for using opioids safely, first geriatric principle is start low and go slow. But at the same time, elders often require the same doses of pain medications as younger patients. So if you start lowly, if you start low, you still have to be mindful and titrate up to the appropriate dose. It's really important to monitor the functional status and the mental status very closely. And then we also need to want to um, anticipate, recognize, and treat side effects. And for example, constipation. 
My constipation is ubiquitous, and older folks tend to have constipation anyway. So at the same time that we're prescribing any type of opiate, we need to address the potential for constipation and put into place a constipation plan. In terms of potential risks of opiates, one of our things that we certainly are very concerned about is potential risk of fall. And sedation is extremely important to talk about, particularly if patients are at risk for overdosing themselves. So here we are, we have opiates which have a risk of sedation, and then if the person is not in a situation where someone else is helping them to manage the, the opiates, they might take too many doses, inadvertent doses. And this can have some really serious side effects. So this is something that we really have to individualize how significant the dementia is in terms of um, the access to opiates. Um, delirium, opiates can make depression worse. So we've got to assess, is there an underlying concomitant depression? Um, and then they can actually make sleep better, they can make sleep worse, and also they can cause decreased appetite and contribute to weight loss. Opioid neurotoxicity is really important to be aware of, particularly in patients with dementia. I mentioned hallucinations and confusion. We tend to see these most when doses are increased. Once the person's at a new steady state dose, usually after a week, this type of uh, confusion can often improve. So sometimes I try to encourage patients and caregivers to just hang in there uh, for a few more days. Uh, research has shown that cognitive function is generally unaffected by stable, moderate doses of opiates. So just because someone has dementia doesn't mean that you can't give them an opiate therapy. And there's a word out there called opioid phobia. And so we want to, this is an area of, that's really important to educate people about, to overcome opioid phobia. One really important point though is that if elders get sick and if their acute illness causes dehydration, they can develop toxicity from their opioids because they, in general, tend to excrete opioids more slowly. This is why we have to encourage hydration. Very important when we start opiates. Respiratory depression is one of the key elements of opioid phobia that I encounter. And I have to spend a lot of time um, educating patients and caregivers about this. That respiratory depression is a dose-dependent effect. And if I'm giving someone a really low dose of opioid, it's not, they're not going to stop breathing with the small dose. Now, um, we do know, though, that opiates do decrease respiratory rate and oxygen saturation. However, this the people get tolerant to this effect uh, very quickly. Apnea is predicted at very high doses of opiates, but this is not what we're talking about with low dose of oral therapy. That said, the key caveat is to avoid excessively rapid dose increases. And this is especially important with methadone, and this is why people shouldn't prescribe methadone unless they really understand a lot about the pharmacology of it. Another point of caution is that the um, respiratory depressant effect can be seen in drug-to-drug -drug interactions with other CNS depressants, such as the benzodiazepines or with alcohol. And we do have to be cautious about the respiratory effects in patients who have, are really debilitated and weak or if they have underlying pulmonary conditions like chronic emphysema. But for someone who doesn't have those conditions, a little dose of opiate is not going to make them stop breathing. I'm going to skip talking about physical dependence, addiction, 
Um, I think that's something that we're really going to talk about a lot on November 13th, if people have the opportunity uh, to come at that time. Morphine is just a really um, important drug for people taking care of uh, patients who have dementia and pain, in part because it, it mimics the action of the naturally occurring opioid peptides in the brain. It binds to receptors in the brain and in the spinal cord, and it is just so versatile. We can use the short-acting tablets, the um, extended-release tablets, the morphine liquid, intravenous, subcutaneous, suppositories. There are just many forms. It's very versatile. And it does have some benefit in terms of reducing the sensation of breathlessness. An important point is that when we use morphine, when we use morphine, I think I need to drink a water. Oh, excuse me. There we go. Um, there are no toxic effects from the drug itself. In other words, it doesn't cause organ damage the way we have, um, we can potentially see with acetaminophen. And unlike acetaminophen, there's no what we call sealing dose. We can keep titrating up gradually over time um, until we see the benefit that we need. And patients can, be a, can have comfort with morphine that they can take over long periods of time. Some people are on it for years, in fact. So we just have to start low and go slow. And I did want to mention the fentanyl patch, because it is something that, even though it's expensive, there are many benefits in patients who have uh, dementia, particularly dealing with caregivers who, let's say it might be a situation where uh, someone is living with an adult child who has a job and has to go off to work, and they're worried about how is the person going to be dosing medication during the day. Well, sometimes fentanyl is a really useful, um, a useful kind of um, something to, to consider. And this, these pictures are taken actually from one of the websites of the uh, manufacturers of the fentanyl patch. And none of my patients in geriatrics have this kind of muscle mass. I mean, <laughs> and the, they, they just don't. But um, I, I just think it's kind of interesting that that's how they you know, market it with you know, someone who looks kind of young and, and rather robust. And you probably can't see it from the back of the room, but they make the example that you don't want to put it on, you do want to put a fentanyl patch on the chest, the back, the flank, or the upper arm. You don't want to put it on a hairy part of the body, and if someone has a lot of hair, you want to just clip the hair. So you never want to shave it or irritate the skin, because that's going to influence how the medication is absorbed. And the way it is absorbed is it makes, the, the, the way the medication, the patch binds is that there's a depot underneath the skin, and the medication is absorbed from that depot. And that'll be important in a moment. So we want to find a place on the body where there's sufficient muscle and fat to absorb it, but yet the patient, particularly someone with dementia, won't be able to remove the patch, which is why sometimes we put them on the upper back in that area. And we tell caregivers that they should try to cover it with uh, a clear tegaderm, but never with tape, because that's supposed to have a bad effect on the absorption. And I have to say from my experience that the fentanyl patches are generally very well tolerated in patients with dementia. A low incidence of daytime somnolence. They don't seem to contribute to a lot of constipation or nausea. And we have to just make the point, though, that it, you have to dispose of them properly, which means folding them in half and flushing them down the toilet. That if a child were in the household or a pet and they got a hold of the fentanyl, it could have really bad effects. And so that's just really, that's what was recommended. What, 
Oh. Get into the water. Okay, so anyone know what's the proper way of disposing them now? Oh, yeah, in a facility. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. Okay, that's a really good thing. Okay, good. I stand corrected. Thank you very much. No, I, I saw that on the, um, I actually hadn't thought about that before, but in a few places they did mention that in my reading, and I, that, that sounds much better. Um, I just want to mention a patient who I had in an assisted living facility who was having, she had this history of schizoaffective disorder, dementia. She had chronic pain. I was treating her with tramadol. But her behaviors were that she was just calling out a lot, and she was starting to um, do a lot of help-seeking and refusal of care. So it became clear to me that I needed to change what I was doing. I couldn't just go with the tramadol anymore. And tried her on a fentanyl patch, 12 micrograms. It's a little, little lady. And the, the, the facility staff like called back two days later. And they said, and, and to quote them, she was, quote, a new woman, uh, a different person, a whole different person. That she became, instead of being just calling out in pain all the time, she was sociable. She started being pleasant, jocular, interacting with people. So it was really great. We had a honeymoon of exactly maybe 10 days. Yeah, there was a 10-day honeymoon when things were going well. But then she wouldn't keep the patch on her body. She would pick it off. And even no matter where we put it, she would pick it off. So the first call came in saying she picked it off. And I said, OK, we'll put another one on. But then a few days later, she picked it off again. So I said, OK, this is just not working. Um, you know, I'm, I'm concerned about the depot medication. So I changed her over to methadone, 2.5 milligrams a day. And it's worked like a charm. You know, it's two weeks later. She hasn't required any breakthrough medication. And now she's going out. She's wheeling herself up and down the hallway. So she's actually having much better function. And it's been a benefit. So in terms of the pain algorithm I mentioned, uh, our first goal is to attempt to get a patient's self-report of pain in their own words. We need to search for a cause of pain, acute pain, chronic pain. Think about that. We need to observe their behaviors. We need to use a pain assessment tool that's appropriate to the degree of dementia. Really important to talk to caregivers and get their report of what's going on. Our next goal, especially if they're getting more aggressive, is not to reach for the neuroleptic, not to reach for the Haldol, but to try a pain medication first. And then what we can do is titrate it and see. Um, caregivers will give you some pretty prompt feedback with what's happening with your analgesic. Um, we got to reassess our pain after each intervention. Just keep communicating, educating. Start with a non-opioid like acetaminophen in an appropriate dose. Then we can move up the, the pain ladder in terms of a short-acting opioid or a stronger-acting opioid. The context of care shifts over time. We start out with dementia. We have the patient, the provider, the family. As things get more severe, with the dementia, we have lots more players involved, need to communicate. And what if Mr. D's family said no to surgery? I didn't realize Dr. Santilli was going to cover that. Safe prescribing. This is really, really important. In, uh, it's DHMC, it's Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center policy that when we prescribe opiates, we always have an opiate contract. That used to be our old term. Now we call them pain treatment agreements. That's something that we're going to talk about on November 13th. 
Um, when patients go into assisted living, one of the big losses is being able to self-medicate for pain. This is a huge issue for patients. Think of ourselves. You know, if you have a headache, you like knowing that you've got Tylenol in your purse. And you can open your purse and take two Tylenol and feel better. Um, when you can't give yourself pain medication, it's a huge loss. So we have to be cognizant of how patients are going to self-medicate as dementia worsens. And I give the example of a 9-year-old with mild dementia who's in an assisted living. She had spinal stenosis pain. She'd had a couple of epidural steroid injections. For many years, she was safe at giving herself pain, her own pain medication. Some assisted livings have a lockbox where you can keep your own pain medicine. And she was able to do it. But what happened was she started running out early. She would call my office and say, you know, the pharmacy shorted me. There were not 120 Percocet in my bottle this month. There were only 90. I'd run out early. So the first time, I said, well, maybe the pharmacy did short her. We kind of gave her a few extra to hold her over. But the next month, she called again. The pharmacy shorted me again. So then I realized, no, it really wasn't the pharmacy. But she wasn't taking it properly. So what I did was then I had the nurses come in and give her her, her medication. And lo and behold, her pain was much better controlled. Much, much better controlled. So clearly what was happening was that she really wasn't taking it every six hours. So that's just a point to keep in mind when people call up and say that they're being shorted. They might not be doing it properly. But the next point is that a year later, the facility called and said that an LPN had confessed to drug diversion and it was, yeah. So I just want to make the point that um, opiates, when the patients are not cognitively intact, the opiates can be misused. I've personally been involved over the years in cases with, I'm sorry to say, uh, with hospice nurses, with facility nurses, at assisted livings, at skilled nursing facilities. Um, usually these cases go on for a while until they get caught. And then when you get caught, you'll find out there's a whole bunch of people who didn't get their pain medication the way we thought they were going to get it. We're going to be talking about that a lot on November 13th. And this is something that we all are concerned about. So my last slide, take home messages. Um, when cognitively impaired elders have changes in behavior, think about pain, assess them for pain, as well as for infection. We're not talking about infection today, but that's another comorbidity that could make pain worse. And that we need to educate patients and families about analgesics in terms of their effectiveness, their safety, and yet we need to be aware about the potential for misuse. So thank you very much. I know we're out of time, but I can stay. Yeah.